We're in a series when people are big and God is small. Um, typically, I would have you turn to a, a passage of scripture that will work through, of course, in a lot of these messages. We're, we're approaching it in a broader way, a more topical way. And so it's hard for me to tell you where to go in scripture. This message is especially unique to that, not because there won't be scripture, but because all the scripture that we'll take time to look at is going to be at the end of the message. And so there, there's a lot to talk about in the message before we get there. So, so I don't want you thinking, man, is he ever going to bring in the Bible to this? I'll definitely bring the Bible into this, um, but it's going to take a little bit to get there. Um, just the way this one is uniquely laid out for us tonight. And so I want you to hang with me as, as we continue this study of the fear of man and the fear of God. As you see in your handout, uh, the key truths that, that we're working through is we fear man because we do not fear God and do not or do not fear God enough. And then we talked about in the second message, the key truth was God must be bigger to you than people are or people will control your life. So that's the foundation of this whole series. That's why we fear man and, and that's why we need to fear God. In, in our last message, it's been a couple weeks since we, we were on this series. So I, I want to revisit that last message for a second to get our minds uh, kind of in this vein. We studied the fear of exposure. If you weren't here, I would encourage you uh, to go on our, on our podcast uh, and, and listen to that, that message. Any messages that you miss, I would encourage you to, to take advantage of the recordings on the podcast. P appreciate Brother Steve who, who literally gets those messages on before he even leaves the night of the message. And so appreciate his faithfulness in that. Um, but the fear of exposure is, is simply this, the fear that somebody will accidentally or intentionally Remove our facade and reveal who we really are. When we fear man more than God, what we'll do in terms of the fear of exposure is we will do anything to keep the deficient parts of us, the weaker parts of us, the sinful parts of us from getting exposed. So what we do is we become professional image managers. We conceal more than we confess. We repress more than we repent all in an effort to not let the real us or portions of the real us be exposed. How do we overcome that? How do we live in the fear of God so that we will not live in the fear of man in terms of the fear of exposure? Well, we pray the prayer of honesty on a regular basis. That's found in Psalms chapter 139. Search me, O God, and know my heart. In that prayer, what we're doing is we're giving God permission to reveal to us what we don't know about ourselves or to expose in us what we're trying to hide or deny in ourselves. And church, here's why that prayer in Psalms 139 is so important, because sin doesn't stand a chance when it's brought into the light. Sin grows when it's kept in the dark. That's why on a daily, at the very least, a weekly basis, we have the, have the guts to pray that dangerous prayer. God, let me know what you know about me that I don't know about me. Search me and show me the things I'm trying to expose because I'm more worried about my image than I'm worried about your glory. All right, so, so we should regularly pray that 
that prayer. Live in the fear of God more than the fear of exposure. Here's the topic for tonight. The fear of harm. The fear of, of harm. Now, now, I want to jump right into our outline tonight and kind of lay out the definition of the fear of harm so that we're all on the same page, okay? Here is the fear of harm. We are living in the fear of harm when we constantly think of others as candidates to hurt or wound us, okay? When we constantly think of others as candidates to hurt or wound us. Now, before I, I jump into this a little bit in application, I want to be clear. I want to make a couple caveats uh, before we get into it. Two of them. First, there should be an appropriate concern for physical safety. So I don't want to act like I'm irresponsible tonight. God created us with these pre preservative instincts so that we could stay alive in harm's way. Okay, it's not smart to let your kids play in the middle of the road. And, and, and as a church, Right. I was just this is brought to mind when I went out there a second ago and adjusted the sound. Uh, we have men out there right now on our security ministry team. It would be silly for us in 2021 to not care about our member safety. We got kids spread all the way in this building and it would be irresponsible for us and inappropriate for us to not take that ministry very serious. And I am thankful for our security ministry. Very, very thankful for them. And so it's obviously appropriate to take these measures. Um, but it's never appropriate to live in the fear of being harmed. Here, here's the, the second caveat. I realize that some in this room may feel this fear of harm more acutely because you've experienced physical harm in the past. So you may have been the one who was the victim of another's sin. Just because we come to church on a Wednesday night doesn't mean that everybody in here has lived in a sanctified bubble their entire life. Or everybody, just because you grew up in a home where your mom loved you and your dad loved you and your big brother loved you and your uncle loved you and nobody ever took advantage of you physically or verbally or in any other way doesn't mean that everybody you worship with grew up in the same environment. So, somehow us conservative Bible believers have to get out of our head that everybody lives in the same fairy tale world as we do. <laughs> Not everybody like me grew up. I'm a second generation Christian. My parents never even used the word divorce one time in our home. My dad only hit my mom. No, just kidding. He never hit my mom <laughs> at all. She hit him like eight times, but that, we won't talk about that. And, and <laughs> you're flinching. You're still fear of harm, man. Live in the fear of God, dad. Um, I am burdened to make it clear, though, that Jenny is a second generation Christian, third generation Christian. And I'm burdened for, for people like us to, to, to make sure that we understand that not everybody had that environment growing up. Siri wants me to say that again. Everything's going wrong tonight. Um, and, 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 but there, so, so there are, the point is there are some people who, who are probably uh, feeling this fear and struggle and wrestle with this fear more personally and so some of the categories that I'm going to bring up is not to, to cause you to have to relive any of that. I, I, I just want to help you to know how to not live in the fear of that happening again, but live in the fear of God more than that. Now, some may struggle less um, with the fear of harm because it's not in our past in any way. So how should we listen to this message 
Well, here's how you should listen to this message. Through the lens of how you can minister to others who do struggle with this fear. Every member of this church is a minister. And, and if you are outward focused in your Christian walk, chances are you will encounter relationships somewhere along the line in your ministry here, your ministry at work, your ministry inside of your family. You will encounter somebody that has been hurt in the past. And as Christians, we need to be equipped with how to help people with these things. Again, once again, you've got to get outside of the realm of how you were raised in your own experience to understand that some people weren't as fortunate. So listen to this message like you might sit across the desk from somebody that, that is asking you to help them work through this. Back to the definition of the fear of harm. Living in the fear of harm means we are constantly thinking of others as candidates to hurt or wound us. So let's talk about how this fear shows up. That's the second point. What does the fear of harm look like? Okay, when we're controlled by it, what negative possibilities dominate our thinking? What are we prone to worry about? Now, there are a lot of possibilities, more than, than I, I would mention tonight, but, but here are a few, and I think they're in your handout there. Number one, sexual exploitation. Okay, this is a common way in which people can fear harm. And again, this may be influenced by one's past experience having been hurt this way before or somebody they loved having been hurt in this way sexually. So, so maybe you struggle and wrestle and maybe even are controlled by the fear of being taken of advantage, being taken advantage of sexually again, or are you deeply fear that in this society of 2021 in the United States of America, that might happen to your children and it, it dominates your mind. Here's another one. And you might dismiss it at first, but follow me. It's bullying. I think this is a real example of how we feel. We fear physical harm from others. Now, now again, this may seem like a childish struggle, but don't forget that neighborhood bullies grow up. And bullying still happens among adults in the workplace, within families, in local government. I know teenagers that bully their parents. I know parents that bully their teenagers. I know spouses that bully each other. I know bosses that bully their employees. I know businesses that can bully their customers. And so, so maybe you would recall bullying in your past and you would fear that happening to you again. There, there's, there's another aspect here and that's persecution or suffering for the gospel. That, that shows up in, in how afraid Christians can be sometimes to, to even invite somebody to church, let alone talk about the gospel with somebody. We fear how they can possibly harm our reputation if for some reason they get offended by our invitation or, or gospel conversation and decide to slander us or mock us or cut us off. We fear that. Christians struggle to live out the gospel in front of their family members because of how their holy lifestyle might harm their relationship with people they really love and honestly desire to be accepted by. Talk to members of our church that Every year we'll go to a family reunion with many, many lost family members and they used to drink with them and not moderately. They used to drink extravagantly with them and, and, and they used to joke with them about certain matters. And now those family members tell me they know exactly what time that they're going to get their kids and leave 
Because that's the time where the alcohol comes out and, and, and the irresponsible carnal behavior begins. And, and they confess to me, I need your prayer because every time I do that, I feel like these stinging glares coming at me. Because I don't want to live that way anymore. I don't want my kids to be exposed to that. And by the way, that's perfectly fine. And so they walk them out of that environment, the environment in which they used to participate in. And, and it, they do so not happily. They do so in fear and trepidation. Why? They love those people. And they want those people to love them. That's their family. It's their blood. It's their friends. And so they... Just standing up for just a, a biblical lifestyle, separation from the world. It, some fear that. Um, we have people in our own church that have been converted out of Catholicism. And, and when they, they got saved and trusted in the gospel and the gospel alone to save them and were baptized in a Christian church and a Baptist church, they were ostracized. They were totally shunned. They, they were made to feel guilty, like they turned their back on their family. And so even talking about their faith out loud, should their family invite them to another gathering, just haunts them. There's some that right now are plagued by the fear of physical sickness. With everything going on with COVID-19, people fear getting the virus and what they fear about that is that their immune system isn't going to be able to fight it off successfully. And this fear paralyzes, I think, even some good Christian people. And that fear of being harmed by a virus can, can inform one's behavior in very strange and desperate ways if they're not careful. Here's one we'll talk about that we don't talk about very often. We should talk about more. And that's racism. Some may wrestle with the fear of physical harm or the fear of rejection because of their skin color or their race or their nationality. Listen, we can't deny the reality that some people have been physically harmed or at least relationally rejected simply because of their race. We can't deny that. As a pastor and a spiritual leader, I certainly don't want to be guilty of being dishonest and making racism a bigger deal than what it is. But I also don't want to be dishonest and guilty of minimizing racism either. Because it is a viable fear. It is a level of discomfort. It is a real issue that some people of color have to deal with today. You would be wrong. Church, listen. You would be wrong as a Bible believer, one that's supposed to be compassionate. You'd be wrong to laugh off the thought of racism being a legit fear for some people. Even worse, you'd be foolish to contribute to that fear simply because you don't understand it or you're not sensitive to it. Just because some areas of some people or, or some movements might blow it out of proportion in your mind doesn't mean it doesn't exist. Can I get an amen on that? If you don't agree, then take me to coffee. Let's talk about it. The fear of harm shows up in verbal abuse. A verbally abusive boss, a verbally abusive spouse, a verbally abusive parent, a verbally abusive child will you know they'll, they'll produce the same type of fear of man that the physical acts of harm will produce in one's life. 
Being beaten down verbally can leave us feeling as though that we're physically weighed down. The emotional and psychological burden of never feeling like you're enough can be crushing. Crushing. I've talked to young people who have grown up never feeling like they measure up to what their mom or their dad want them to be. They get a B, they should have gotten an A. They score four points, they should have scored 10. You understand what I'm saying? And, and, and this, none of this is in the notes. I'm just kind of speaking out of an overflow of a pastor's heart right now. But, but as parents, um, we got to be careful. I love, I love the idea of pushing your kids and having high expectations of your kids and all that. But you kind of got to know what your kid's best is. And, and, and you got to give your kid a win every once in a while. Right, teachers? Every once in a while, you, you got to give them a sticker on the star chart or something. Every once in a while, you got to give them a pat on the back. Every once in a while. I'm not, if they do a terrible job, don't tell them they did a good job. But if they get a good job, tell them they did a good job. Don't be nervous or awkward about saying, man, I love it when you do, like, when you do it that way. I'm so proud of you. Well, they, if they would, you know, they, every time they do it good, they do it bad 10 times. Well, then tell them they did it bad 10 times, but tell them they did it good once. You get what I'm saying? Yeah. There's sexual harassment that, that overlaps a lot with, with sexual e exploitation in, in a lot of ways. These are all legit ways in, in, in which the fear of harm shows up in people's lives. But listen, just because the, the fear of harm is legit doesn't mean believers are justified to live in this fear. More than the fear of God. Do you understand what I'm saying? Maybe one of these areas rung a bell for you. And so you're thinking in your heart, oh, that's why I feel that way. And something inside of you says it's OK. Oh, it's not. It's not OK to live in that. God wants better for you. God can offer you a better life than living in the fear of being harmed in one of these ways, even if your past experience informs you that you should. So so so, so let's let's look at the next point. Let's transition into that. And it's this. How does the fear of harm control us? Many believers aren't just wrestling with one or two of these fears. They're being controlled by them. And now maybe you're sitting there thinking, no, no, I'm not controlled by the fear of harm at all. Before you come to that conclusion about yourself, let's consider some of the ways in which this shows up. Okay, check your handout out. Number one, perpetual victimhood. How do I know if I'm being controlled by the fear of harm? Well, if there is this perpetual sense of being a victim. Okay, a temptation that you have and carry on a regular basis to place blame for all future difficulties on those past experiences that have hurt you. Did you catch that? If you have the propensity to before the difficulties even come, blame any future challenges in your life or disappointments in your life on the past experiences that have hurt you. Being a victim can become your identity. Here's another one, guilt, guilt for those who've been abused or abandoned or betrayed. There might be a temptation to think that you deserved it. Now, now let me take this opportunity to reject that lie. Because if you've ever thought I deserved the hurt I received from others, well, because I'm a bad person or 
because God is angry with me or because I acted bad towards my parents, then, then please hear me. That's a lie. It is true that we all deserve death because of our sin against God for the wages of sin is death. But watch this. The punishment that God meets out is holy justice, not injustice. There is no evil in God's wrath ever. So if you're abused or you're harmed by man emotionally, physically, verbally, relationally, realize this. It is always wrong. Always. Nobody made in the image of God deserves to be treated unjustly. Nobody. Nobody. Not even if you're righteously indignant. You are not justified to treat people like that. They're self-pity. Self-pity. Thoughts like, man, it'd be so much easier for me to trust the Lord if only I hadn't experienced this in my past. Or, I, I can never change from fearing man in this way. It's just the way I am. Listen, I, I'm just a worse sinner than others, I guess. See, self-pity can be a very attractive response. You know why? It's easy. It's easy. We've got to recognize that self-pity is simply another manifestation of pride. Amen? Why? Because self-pity is focusing on who? Self. You're trusting in self instead of God. You're turning to yourself. Here's maybe the most common one, I think, and that's difficulty in trusting others. The person struggling with, with this fear of harm that I'm talking about tonight is, is very likely to struggle in their relationships. Very likely to struggle in letting people get close to them. If, if there's a regular fear of physical harm or past experiences of harm in their life, it may be a temptation to view others and other relationships through that experience. And so here's how it plays out at church, at work, inside of your family, other places where, where relationships are formed in your life, you may tend to hold people at a distance simply because you're afraid of being hurt again. Now, I was just talking about this uh, with Brother David, and he made such a good point. And, and we live in the church world, so a lot of our, our thinking about relationships and how they're operating and good and bad, up and down, oftentimes center around the context of the church. It's just where we live, but th this flows out to work and family and other places. Um, but I think about in the church world, and again, I'm just taking a little bit of a side route, but I think in the church world, when, when there's a fractured relationship of some kind, because that's what happens when you go to church with sinners and you're pastored by a sinner. I mean, just fractures are going to happen in our relationships. Offenses will come, hurt will come, misunderstanding will come, uh, disappointing expectations will come. All of that. And so a lot of times I found in the church world, what people do when they're hurt by somebody is they they use that as an opportunity to run from that relationship into a new relationship. So their default response is that person hurt me. And so I'm leaving that class or that church or whatever, and I'm going to another one and I'm going to identify with another body of believers or I'm going to identify with another connection group or I'm going to get involved in another ministry because I don't want to walk down the same square of carpet that that person just walked down. Right. And so so we're going to go find here, Here's where Christianity is flip, flips that idea on its head. It's one of the paradoxical thoughts of, of living the disciple life is is that. When you get hurt or there's a relationship fractured, that's not an opportunity to run to a new one. That's an opportunity to reconcile that one. 
Matthew chapter 18, Jesus was so gracious to tell the disciples how to do it. He said, when, when you, your brother trespasses against you, you don't all of a sudden hold everybody to, at, at, at a distance now, or you don't all of a sudden lessen your time at church because that person's going to be there. And every time you go, you just can't stand being there with them. You don't do that. That's what lost people do. Save people, forgive like Jesus forgives. And so you go to that brother, that sister one-on-one. -on -one. If that doesn't work, you take somebody with you to help moderate and reconcile that relationship. And you just build on those conversations. You understand what I'm saying? You, you work towards reconciliation. A broken relationship is an opportunity for forgiveness. It's an opportunity for restoration. It's an opportunity for a new beginning in that relationship. Here's another way that, that it shows up, bitterness number five. So as you struggle with these other responses, fail to repent and pursue Christ-like responses after being hurt, then all these things are going to cause this root of bitterness towards other people, maybe even towards God himself to grow in your heart. I have found as a pastor and just as a Christian, bitterness is probably the worst of all the symptoms that arise out of the fear of man. Because bitter people are personally troubled. And they trouble others. Yet here's why bitterness is so dangerous. Because the bitter one often struggles to see their own bitterness. They don't know they're bitter. And if they know they're bitter, they're unwilling to get past it. It's, it, it may be the most dangerous condition outside of unbelief for a believer to find themselves in. Is bitterness. And so when the seeds of bitterness begin to be tossed around in your mind, in your heart, please listen church, you've got to deal with those while they're small. Because when they grow, they'll begin overtaking your heart and your mind. And bitter people just are illogical. They're unaware. I want to say that with compassion because I've been there and I'm subject to be there again. And so I'm not saying that with condemnation. I'm saying that trying to help you. Like you don't want to be just overtaken with that symptom. And if you are, it's very possible the fear of being harmed is controlling you. So examine your own life tonight. Do any of those symptoms show up? To, to help us kind of dive further into this, I, I want to I talk about some Bible characters now where, where the fear of harm shows up in, in bad and good ways. And, and, and maybe this will help more of, of the symptoms arise in your life and mind. If you still think you're exempt from this, it's a possibility you might be. But, but it's also a possibility that you just haven't seen you in this message yet. And sometimes seeing Bible characters that you really revere struggle with something, lets you know, oh, I can struggle with the same thing. And, and so here, here's some negative examples. Where's the fear of harm in scripture is point number four. We find it in Abraham. Pastor Bittner preached on this on Sunday night out of Genesis chapter 12. Abraham feared physical harm, even death at the hand of Pharaoh. So what did he do? He lied. Lied about his, his, his wife, uh, Sarah. He feared man. Now, now here's what's unique about that. He, no one had abused him. No one. He lied in fear of future abuse. There's the Israelites in Numbers chapter 13. They feared the report of the spies. Remember returning from scouting the land of Canaan? Ten of the twelve spies that, that were sent into the promised land came back fearing what man could do to them, which led them to not trust the Lord, led them to miss out on God's best. Boy, I hope you come back on Sunday morning. I'm going to be preaching on Peter out of Mark chapter 14, where he denied Christ at his trial. Why? Because he feared what may befall him if others found out that he indeed was a follower of Christ. Because he feared man, 
more than he feared God and he denied Christ, he experienced an intense amount of guilt and shame. Here are some positive examples that overcame this. We think of Joshua. He was only one of two of the 12 spies that sought to persuade the Israelites not to give in to the fear of physical harm. And he experienced God's best. We think of Ruth. She had a sister named Orpah, along with their mother-in-law, Naomi, who were left as widows in, in, the homeland, in their homeland of Moab. When Naomi decided it was too dangerous for her to stay in a foreign land as a widow woman, she said, I'm going back to Bethlehem, Judah. Orpah said, no way. Why? Because if Orpah went to Bethlehem, Judah, now she would be a widow woman in a foreign land. And, and that would be like even worse in a patriarchal society. She would have been abused or at least feared being abused in that society or in that culture. But Ruth said, you know what? I fear your God, Naomi. I have come to commit and believe your God. And so I want to follow you as you follow your God. I'm going back to his land. And she did. And God blessed her faith. Put her in contact with Boaz, the rich farmer. She married and became a mother to a boy named Obed. Obed was the father of Jesse and Jesse was the father of David and David is the father of Solomon and go down the line and you've got Jesus Christ. I guarantee if Ruth were standing behind this pulpit giving a testimony today, she, she would definitely say, I'm glad I put my, my fear in God more than I put my fear in what man could do to me. There's Daniel and his friends. They chose to fear the Lord in the face of the lion's den. They chose to Fear the Lord in face of these ferocious lions. There's David when all the armies of Israel turned their back, wouldn't fight Goliath. David didn't fear what, what Goliath could do to him. He feared his God. That's the reason why he was fighting. Because Goliath was defying his God. He said, I fear my God more than I fear what 10 foot tall giant can do to me. And God blessed him with a victory. The apostle Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 11 and 12, he outlines all the things that happened to him, but he didn't fear what men were going to do to him. They stoned him. They tried to martyr him. Um, he was shipwrecked, all these kind of things. But you know what he writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 12? Therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities. I take pleasure in reproaches. I take pleasure in necessities. I take pleasure in persecutions. For when I am weak, then am I strong. Now, I don't know about you, but I want to be included in the positive examples of how I overcame the fear of harm, not the negative examples of how I succumbed to the fear of harm. I want to experience the blessings that, that come with living in the fear of God by faith, not cowering to the fear of man and how others may harm or wound me in some way physically or emotionally or, or relationally or, or verbally or how, however that might be. If I want that, how do I get it? How's it possible? How do we overcome the fear of harm? Number five, that's, that's the question. The short answer is the same answer that, that we've had and we'll have for every fear. If we want to overcome the fear of harm, we're going to have to live in the fear of God. Matthew 10, 28. This is a, a key, key verse. And fear not them which kill the body. That's, that's man. But are not able to kill the soul. But rather fear him, God, which is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Now look closely at what Jesus is saying. He's recognizing that people can hurt us. He recognized that. He said man can go as far as killing you. That's the ultimate in physical harm. But he, what, what he tells us as believers is that we need to have a radical reorientation towards the fear of harm for men. He's saying that 
Our fear of God should be far above our fear of what man can do. Why? Here's why. Because man is only able to kill the body. God has a greater power. He can destroy both the body and the soul. Thus, we should revere and we should fear the one who is able to determine our eternal destiny, whether we live in everlasting judgment or live in everlasting life. He is the one we should place our trust in, not man. He's the one that should control our lives, not man. He's the one we should serve, not man. He's so much bigger than people. Fear him. Now, I'm going to hasten to a close. Our, our culture would have us convinced, please hear me, that we need to view this struggle from either a victim perspective or an arrogant perspective. They would tell us to either power down in self-pity if you've been harmed in the past, victimization, or power up in self-preservation or arrogance, a hero mentality. So those, those who'd be tempted to power down in self-pity become the victim. Here's what they say. They say something like this. I have the right to feel this way because of what he or she did to me. How could I not fear that every man will treat me in the same way that man treated me? How could I ever trust again after what my father did to me? How could I ever go to church again after what that church did to me? That's a victim mentality. There are those on the other side of the spectrum who want to power up in self-preservation and develop a tough guy syndrome. They operate in pride. They have the stiff upper lip approach to life. They live with thick skin and a hard heart. Because to them, they see the fear of harm as a sign of weakness. And they wouldn't dare admit to others that they fear that anything can harm them. That's arrogant. So we've got self-pity on one hand. We've got arrogance on the other. Those are secular ways of dealing with this fear and they're inadequate in every way. So how do we live in the fear of God to win victory over this? Just two simple ways. Number one, remind yourself that God is your protector. Remind yourself. I'm going to have you meditate on two passages of scripture this week. You'll see it on the back of your handout. The first one is Psalms chapter 27. It says, the Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the strength of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? Do you mind reading that out loud with me? It says, the Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the strength of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? Truth is, in your mind, you may understand that God is your protector, but that doesn't always mean you feel like it. You have to remind yourself of this truth. Then when you do the lie that the devil will, will, will whisper in your mind that you have no one watching over you, the lie that you have no one protecting you will slowly lose its grip on you, no matter what you've experienced in the past. So you remember that God's your protector. Number two, you look to your high priest. Praise the Lord, I'm not your high priest. And no one with the first name Father is either. Second passage you need to meditate on is Hebrews 4, verse 15 and 16. Would you read it out loud with me? Ready, read. For we have not an high priest which cannot be touched with the filling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. 
Let us therefore come boldly unto the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Did you catch the first phrase? We don't have a high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities. He was in all points tempted, tried, pressured, squeezed like we are. When you think of the fear of harm, did Jesus ever face that fear? Well, I preached about it on Sunday in the Garden of Gethsemane, right? As a man, he knew what the cross meant. The crown of thorns, humiliation of being hung naked, the cat of nine tails, Roman soldiers plucking the beard out of his face, the cross pouring pouring down pressure and pushing down pressure into the open wounds. He understood all of that. He got it. He saw it in his mind and it scared him half to death. He feared what man can do. So he said, God, do you have another way that I can be the savior? As a man, I'd like to take a bypass right here. But he knew he had to drink the cup of God's wrath in the fullest and so he said, not my will, but thine be done. Now, don't overlook what that means for you. Doesn't just mean that you can be saved because he did that. It means that he has faced the fear of what man can do to him. He faced that. He felt that. And so that means when you go to him, you don't have to go to him like you'd go to an earthly priest who's never felt that fear before. You're going to the one that has felt that fear even more intensely than you'll ever feel that fear. And when you talk to him, you can do so boldly. You're not talking to a disconnected deity. You're talking to a man that was robed with flesh like you have. That slept at, in the night like you sleep. That probably snored like some of you snore. You're, 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 you're praying to a man that in all points felt this fear. What does that mean? He understands you. He gets you. When your spouse doesn't, he does. Your spouse not, might not be able to empathize. They can sympathize, mean they can feel sorry for you, but they might not be able to empathize, feel that sorrow. It's like I can feel sorry for someone that's having chemotherapy treatments, but I can't empathize. Never been there. So your spouse may not be able to empathize. Jesus can. Do you hear me? Jesus can. Your parents may not be able to. Jesus can. Your pastor may not be able to. Jesus can. Therefore, therefore, look to him. Find grace to help in time of need. Yeah. So here's what I want to do as, as we close. I, I, I want to sing that song that we, we sang to close the song service. When I looked on, on the, the paper and saw that Brother Daniel picked that song, Jesus, uh, I thought it was so fitting for how we could end our, our service. So why don't the band come up and we're going to just end in, in worship tonight. You can come to an altar if you'd like. Maybe you need to after that message and that'd be perfectly fine. If you don't feel like you want to come to an altar, I want us all just to lift our voices and sing and consider the lyric of our high priest 
being able to be the one that protects us because he's been there before. Consider all the aspects of Jesus that this song is going to mention, especially, and I don't know if this message touched every single person in here, but I know it touched some. And if this message touched you because you are personally affected by this fear, then man, sing and remind yourself through worship that Jesus has been there and he'll walk you through it. And just praise his name for it. Stand to your feet. Let's sing this together. Put it on the screen for us. There is a truth older than the ages. There is a promise of things yet to come. You sing it along with Brother Daniel.